Welcome to Love Nature, a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. If you enjoy the show, please consider subscribing at love-nature.org. You can visit our museum virtually at naturalsciences.org. For this episode, our guest is Benjamin Von Wong. Benjamin is a Canadian artist, activist, and photographer, best known for his environmental art installations and hyper-realist art style. He is a motivational speaker and an advocate against ocean plastics. Now here are our hosts, CEO and Director of the Museum, Dr. Eric Dorfman, and Chief Veterinarian and Director of Veterinary Sciences, Dr. Dan Dombrowski. Ben Von Wong, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. Great to have you on the show and great, great to meet you. We're excited to, to talk to you today. Your images and, and a lot of your work is amazing, right? And and because we're sort of doing this podcast and we have our listeners, we're, we're hoping that you can describe some some of your pieces in a way that will sort of give them a, a the imagery of what we're talking about. So I think the best way to describe my work is that I create images that people think are photoshopped. And I guess what I mean by that is that when people look at my work, they don't immediately know what they're looking at. Uh, it's not clear if it's a photograph. It's not clear if it's CGI. It's not clear if it's a painting. People get really confused. And, and that's sort of by design, because I think when people look at my work, the goal is to ignite a sense of curiosity. I want them to ask, what am I looking at? And that gives me the chance to say, oh, actually, you're looking at a photo. It's probably a photo of an art installation. And those things that you see littered around, well, those are single-use plastic items designed to show how each individual action that we take adds up. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then the messaging is, is hopefully self-evident, uh, from, for the different pieces. Some of them involve maybe putting a mermaid on 10,000 plastic bottles, or, um, my most recent one is a giant faucet with plastics flowing out of it, but the, the faucet looks like it's levitating. And so there's a sense of magic and wonder. Um, and, and the environments just look so surreal because wait, who's building an art installation inside of a dumpster? And why is there a a two-year-old kid inside of that dumpster who happens to be my nephew. And so I guess the best way to describe my work is they're, they're just a series of questions and, and they hope to convey emotions. Um, and obviously, if you, if you have the chance to go there and look at it, it might do way more justice than just my words. Oh, absolutely. And we will put a link to yeah. on the web so people can have a look as I- well. I think your, you know, your description is so spot on for for my experience. The first time I, I saw uh, you, you talked about the piece with a mermaid, you know, in in uh, surrounded by these plastic bottles, and that was my first question. It was like, wow, what is this? Wait, is that a real person? That's exactly sort of how I went through uh, in my mind looking looking at those pieces, and so I, I think that's amazing. The detail too in every piece, not just the sort of background and the setting, but, but in that, that work, the mermaid and, you know, the, the positioning and postures and everything is just, it's so cool. And it just makes you really brings you in, uh, I think, to the work in that way. Well, and the, the enormous faucet that is dumping plastic onto some pristine environment with dancers or all kinds of things involved with it. You often show people behind the scenes, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So I learned kind of earlier on in my career the importance of proving. So when something looks fake, 
it's very effective to show that it's actually real. And I think it's, it's sort of like a magic trick where, you know, when someone performs a trick on you, you know, there's a trick. And so, um, and, and if there's anything that kind of teases at what that may be, if it, you know, it, it could just add so many layers of interest into the whole thing. I think when I first started out in my photography journey, there was this realization that if I shared how to do something, uh, that people were intrinsically more interested in it because now you're giving people the opportunity to learn something new. You're not just saying, oh, look at what I did. Look how awesome I am. You're saying, oh, look at what I did. This is how you can do it too, if you're interested. And so these behind the scene videos and these behind the scene photos are really an invitation for somebody to learn more and to explore more. And hopefully in the process of doing that, also feeling a sense of empowerment because when you look at how these projects come together, you just see volunteers, you see a lot of problem solving, you see just people that, that, that want to come together and all these different stakeholders from different walks of life, whether they're nonprofits, for-profits, community leaders, artists and artisans, um, just all coming together because they care. And in that, the hope is to spread, well, hope. People are so immured to cool Photoshop it's true. It's kind of a, the, the biggest shock of it because it's beautiful, incredibly beautiful work and very creative. But the shock of it is that you have built these enormous, like there's there's stage sets, aren't they? Really? We don't see enough that's real in some ways, like in, in life, you know, we're just so used to the, the fake, but you've got, you, you mentioned volunteers. Some of your teams that help you put this together can be quite big, can't they? Yeah, of course. And, and and over time, it's not just volunteers. There are professionals that are hired to come and create the scaffolding for these projects. I think the volunteer piece of the puzzle is, yeah, sure, it's a little bit of a cost saving, but really it's also by choice. Inviting people to be a part of a super large scale art installation that will be seen and heard by tens of thousands, if not hundreds, if not millions of people is, is kind of, it's really cool to be a mm. part of something that big. And, and I just realized earlier on, even when I had budgets for things, like I wanted to make sure that I could include people in these things. And it actually comes with more struggle. Like it, it could probably be easier if I just hired everyone and gave them a schedule and just <laughs> dealt with professionals. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm making my life a little bit more difficult with insurance and liability. And now people who don't show up because they're volunteering or people who show up later, or whose plans change or who come way more than they're supposed to, because they're so excited. And it's just a different <laughs> vibe. And, uh, yeah. but there's something really beautiful about it, right. Opening that possibility for change and, 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 and giving anyone the chance to be a part of it. Yeah, we, we at the museum, we, we have uh, hundreds of volunteers, over a thousand volunteers that, that really help us, you know, get our message out and, and run our events and really make the operation work. And so I, 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 I agree. I think that, you know, if you can provide the opportunity for folks to volunteer and be involved, they really take ownership of those ideas. And, and especially when you're trying to, you know, make a difference and, and sort of get these environmental issues out I, I think it's important to get that community involvement that kind of is what you're both saying in a way is that it should be a win-win isn't it like they get something out of it and and there's a synergy which happens and and of course that's so cool to watch the films of your work and your work obviously relies a lot on social media like that's seems like it's fundamental to your 
practice. I'm just wondering about how the connection to social media might influence the the images that you connect or or your process in general. So I think maybe first off, it's important to note that social media is not a monolithic entity that doesn't change. If anything, social media today is very different than social media three years ago and social media 10 years ago was radically different. And so when I say like I create work for social media, you have to design the work so that it can spread in the environments and ecosystems in which they're currently active that, that are currently growing to the best of your ability, right? And so that just means like actually actively being aware of which platforms are out there, which ones are trending, what are the rules, you know? You can't post a horizontal video on TikTok as an example. It, it doesn't matter how great it is. No one's going to watch it. You know, people on TikTok have a significantly shorter attention span. And so really within a second and a half, you need to have a hook. And then, then by three seconds, you need to have a question. And then, you know, before 10 seconds is in, they need to have some kind of a resolution or otherwise you're just going to dial off and move away. And so it's just being aware of all these different things and trying to create as many assets as possible. And so you know, in the last campaign that I did, sure, I had a photo series and I did have mainstream media press launch and I had the galleries pushing this out there and I had my own personal newsletter and then I posted on social media. But then I also tried to create YouTube versions, Facebook versions, Instagram versions and TikTok versions of the <laughs> piece that I created. And so it just becomes this entire operation just trying to reach people in different ways. And maybe just to kind of wrap this loop, I don't know if social media today is really about being as popular as you can alone. I think social media today is about figuring it out. How can you plant a seed or create a trend that everyone can participate on together? Because we're kind of beyond the point where you have these sort of monolithic creators. And, you know, the reason a platform like TikTok is so popular suddenly everyone could be a singer. Suddenly everyone could be a dancer. You just needed to follow the script and replicate the thing. And so this idea of open sourcing creativity is something that I've been personally looking really deeply into mm. because people need to feel empowered. It's not about saying, oh, look at what I can do. You guys are all screwed. It's saying, look at what we can all do together. Look at what we could co-create together. You're also an engineer, right? So you, you kind of came, <laughs> not just an artist, uh, in, a, in a photographer and a, an activist, but you started all this as a, a mining engineer. Is that right? How, how does that play into your, your story? Yeah. You know, when I was 16 years old, I went to like an open house because I was going to start university the next year. And I was good at math and physics. And my dad was an engineer. And I was like, well, what else am I going to do with my life? I might as well be an engineer. And I went into the open house and it turns out that the mining engineers had the best pitch. They said, you got to travel the world, you get the best salaries, you have the smallest grades, you got a paid internship, you got all this amazing opportunity. And I'm like, oh, great, let's do that. And then, and then like, it didn't take me very long to be like, oh crap, what did I do? And, um, but you know, when you're young, you don't really know what you want to do. It's not like you have anything better. So my goal was just to get a degree. And um, I still remember like one year before quitting my day job, I was like, oh crap. I was like one, one, one year before um, or six months before graduating, I was like, oh no, this is, this is not good. What happens when I graduate? That means, that means this is what I have to do for the rest of my life. Like I totally screwed something up <laughs> and, um, and I wanted to change programs and like completely quit. And my parents were like, no, you're not going to do that. Like, just, just go get the degree. You're like 99% of the way there. And I was like, oh, fine, whatever. 
So I got the dinky piece of paper and then I was like, well, I guess I have to get a job now. And I just kept working. And so, I don't know, engineering was something I just kind of did just kind of because I didn't know what else to do. And then on the evenings and weekends was when I was kind of picking up photography as a hobby. When I decided to quit my day job three and a half years later, it wasn't because I wanted to be an artist. I just didn't want to be an engineer. And I thought that I wanted to travel and the best way to travel was um, with art. And it just so happened that it all worked out. I just got really lucky along the way. And uh, lo and behold, a decade later, I have never looked back and I think I would make a terrible mining engineer. So I don't have a plan B anymore. So with this, and, and I, I did see a, a presentation you did where you were talking about this fantastic series that you did with uh, models underwater. Prior to that project in like 2013, I'd done this like stunt. So when I quit, my, when I first quit my day job, I realized that the best way to stand out was to do things that nobody else was doing, right? Like if you did something no one else was doing, then you could get noticed. You had a greater chance of being seen and heard and published. I just kind of went for the dumbest, craziest stunts that I possibly could. And one of those <laughs> stunts that I did in 2013 uh, was that I wanted to tie a model underwater in a shipwreck that I was visiting with my family while I was you know, on a tourist trip in Bali. At this point in time, I, had, I didn't even have my diver's license. I just thought it was going to be great. And so somehow within a week, I pulled this project together. I got my dive certification. And the next day we were underwater, you know, shooting this model who had flown herself in from Dubai. We had found a dress designer. We had makeup artists. We had this whole thing. And I just, you know, pulled this shoot off and put it online. And it, and it was really successful. It, got, it, got, it was trending back when Facebook still had trending on the right side of the tabs. And I think it was my first experience with going viral. And so Later on in my career, sometime around 2015, 2016, after I had experienced some success as a commercial photographer, I started questioning, like, what is the point of having a whole lot of views and a whole lot of followers if all I'm going to do is earn money and help companies sell stuff? And so I was at this phase where I decided to put my entire commercial career on pause in order to figure out how could I use the ability to do weird things that got attention for good. And so I just started looking around for different opportunities anytime I ended up somewhere. And so I was invited to teach a photography workshop in Fiji. And I was talking to some friends asking like, well, what is there to do in Fiji? And they said, oh, there's some really cool shark dives. And I was like, oh, sharks. So I Googled like stuff and I learned all sorts of like terrifying facts, like how we kill yeah. over a hundred million yeah. sharks every single year and how sharks are an apex predator and, you know, we have this irrational fear of sharks, like over 300 species of sharks, and and only three of them are even remotely dangerous to humans to the point where I think cows kill more people than sharks do. Anyways, yeah. this whole thing on, on how important it was to protect this apex predator. And I thought, what's the best way to prove that like sharks aren't particularly dangerous? Well, obviously, I know how to tie a model underwater. Why don't I just tie a model underwater with some sharks swimming around? And that, that shouldn't <laughs> be a problem. <laughs> And right. so this was this project came together in just about the same way where I was in Fiji. I was convinced that I wanted to do this project. So I had bought a shepherd's crook on Amazon and just had it with me <laughs> in the suitcase. And I got there and I just started looking for anyone who was an expert at shark dives who would like basically babysit me so I can do this photo shoot. Because one, once again, I'm not a super experienced diver. I just had done it a couple of times before. And so I somehow got hooked up to the Minister of Tourism 
and they introduced me to some sustainable ecotourism resorts called Barefoot Squata. And then I ended up there and they had a shark, a resident shark scientist who was doing some research. And that guy was our shark whisperer and he led the dive that helped get the photos and ended up shooting these photos. So one of the things that I really struggled with earlier on in my career, where I was like really trying to make a difference, but nobody wanted to like be a part of it. (laughs) Because I think like nonprofits are really risk averse, right? And so when you say like, hey, let's collaborate. I'm going to tie them out underwater with some sharks. And they're like, "Uh, yeah, no, you you do that. Like, leave us alone. Um, (laughs) I I actually had to do the whole project on my own. And then go look for a nonprofit to say like, hey, I did this thing. I'm going to publish it. Like, what can I support? And so that's how I ended up finding another group called Shark Stewards. And we ended up like launching the series, attach it to a petition that was about to be delivered to the Minister of Tourism in Malaysia uh, to create shark sanctuaries. And then it ended up generating like 88,000 petition signatures. It got onto the front page of Reddit three times. Because once again, it was one of those things where it was like, wait, what's going on? Did you really do the thing? Yes, we did the thing. And um, there we go. Well, and you've got a series of photos that accompany that with the model breathing the, you know, the apparatus. So she's taking a breath. Is either you've written about it or somebody else said about you that you're creating these fantasy worlds. And that's the the thing that's so cool about that, that understanding that the fantasy world that you create is physical. Do you have any special connection to the ocean or that just happens to be where the opportunities arose that you're taking advantage of? You know, growing up, I never liked nature. Um, no, wow. no, no. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a, I was a city kid and still am, actually. I, I very much like comforts of technology and home. And it's only recently that I've, you know, in the last year or two that I've started to kind of appreciate nature, but still not necessarily love it. Like I, I don't like going camping. I think I don't like the ocean. I think the water is too cold. <laughs> so it's really not my thing. And it's really fun to be a person that doesn't love nature, who's an environmentalist. And I say that because when I do my projects, I try to speak to other people like me, which I think there are so many of. There are those who yeah. like, we might live in the city and not care too much for nature, but at the same time, we depend on it. And so in that, there is still a relationship, whether you want it or not. It's kind of like being born to your parents. You don't get, like you're you're stuck with them. Um, It's kind of the same with with nature. It's like we rely on all these ecosystem services to survive. And so I think, you know, the environmental world is saturated with people who already love the environment. And so all the National Geographic stuff, like, cool, that stuff is great. Showing beauty and falling in love with beauty, you know, is an effective way of communication and keep doing it. But like, what about the rest? How do we bring everyone else along for this journey. And I think that's what I try to do. That's why the fantasy is important. That's why the adventure, the sense of camaraderie, the human pieces are like so prominent in my work. And it there isn't too much of me talking about my connection to nature because I'm really trying to draw other people in. I'm trying to widen the top of the funnel. Yeah, for sure. So, so in your work, you know, you're talking about your experiences with nature. What's become your sort of favorite topic or, or favorite environment in nature through your work? Have you have you sort of settled on something? I mean, like the work that I do, I'm, I'm probably most well known at this point for being the plastics guy. Like yeah. a lot of work that I do is around single use plastics. 
And this is not, not because I love it. I'm actually really, really tired of being the garbage boy. Going <laughs> yeah. around, like, <laughs> uh, we're like perpetuating <laughs> that. Yeah. Like going around being the guy who takes trash and makes into something like beautiful. It's like, okay, I, I've done it now. You know, there are, there are actually a lot of artists doing this now. Um, but when I started, there were a lot fewer. And so I kind of feel like it's time to move on uh, from, for me to start moving on onto like exploring different things uh, at this moment i am particularly interested in shifting away from the problem space and start focusing more on the solution space um this comes from the realization doing like single-use plastic stuff is that you know i've spent now five years doing campaigns against plastics whether it's microfiber plastics uh in the clothing that we wear or single-use plastics like straws like or bottles or anything like that and when it reaches the point like where everybody knows that plastics is a problem, but like when you go to do your groceries, you can't really avoid it unless you're, you know, you have the privilege of really going zero waste. You just end up raising frustration. Then people just get angry. They're just like, oh man, like I don't have a choice. I'm doing all the right things, but it's the companies, it's the government, it's this, it's that. And so like, if you don't have a solution and you're still raising awareness about the same problems over and over again, it's just raising frustration. And so how do we inject hope into um yeah. hope for the future instead of this whole like eco-anxiety we're we're doomed kind of thing and it's 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 actually you know if i have a confession it's it's, it's more for myself than for anyone else because i'm like i am so you know depressed about like thinking about <laughs> all the things and the monumental problems that are wrong yeah but i want to start playing more in like the space of like you know regenerative agriculture and <sighs> Oh my gosh. Um, alternative materials and all yeah. these other things that are coming up that are so much more interesting and exciting. I, yeah. I wrote down on my piece of paper, you know, as I take notes while you idea for Ben, regenerative agriculture. I just literally wrote <laughs> yeah. that down on my, yeah. my paper. This is such an important topic because, of course, it does give a, a roadmap for the future that, that many of us can start to connect to. Yeah. So that's that's exciting. It's yeah. really exciting. So and, and there's a there's such a hunger for it because like no. I mean the reason Tesla is successful as a company is because it's giving people the ability to well it's giving giving people the feeling like they're contributing to a solution all the while making them look cool on the way. Like it's like yes. come and participate in the future with us. And you know, yeah, we can have a whole argument about like whether electric cars are gonna Lithium are gonna mining really solve the issue, but yeah, but well, yeah, let's not yeah. let's not cloud cloud that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thinking about your perspective and putting, I want to just read something you wrote. I read on uh, on Mythos One that you're looking for a place to live. I'm going to read this, and to me, this is almost like when you talk about maybe no favorite wild place, but you've got a an environment that seems to resonate with you. So you said, before the end of 2022, I aim to live in a community of like-minded creatives, entrepreneurs, and change makers. I feel my ideal self when I'm a co-creative in a co-creative mindset, surrounded by artists and artisans that I can learn from and collaborate with. Would you say that that's your, almost your natural environment? So I would say that these days I have to, I, I travel constantly to look for it. And so I'm constantly in a cycle of like, I guess, I guess death and rebirth. I'm going to one place, I'm finding all these people, I'm collaborating with them. And then 
I go to the next place for the next project. And I'm kind of tired of always starting back from zero and trying to find like, where is this one place where I can live, uh, work and learn. And I think those three simultaneously is something that is really important for me. For me to do those things, there's a number of requirements. You know, there, there has to be proximity to an airport because at the end of the day, a lot of the work that I do still requires flying. I also want like access to an atelier, like a workshop space where there are other artisans that are using their hands to craft things, um, ideally in the context of a living laboratory, you know, where people are prototyping different materials and coming up with different solutions, I think would be amazing. Like, you know, we have all these accelerators around the world where technologists come together to make money. You're like, why can't we do the same for nature? And then I also just think like it would be really cool to be in a in a context where where we kind of live the world that we hope to pioneer. So you know, a, a, a village or a town that was built on a, a stakeholder economy model as opposed to a shareholder economy model, because I think that so much of the problems that we face today are the results of corporations acting on behalf of shareholders, not the people that they're affecting. And incidentally, as part of that. We have so much wealth accumulation, uh, which is just perpetuating inequalities, um, wealth inequalities that continue to grow. And so if it's easier to make money, if you have money, then you're never going to be able to ease the burden on those who don't have much. And if we look at the environmental problem as a whole, one of the greatest threats to the environment is poverty. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is one of the big conversations at COP27 recently, which is that, you know, rich countries need to start helping the poor countries so that they can catch up and, you know, reach climate neutrality. But they're still trying to figure out how to get electricity and safe water and access to toilets. And it's like, you can't deny those people those things too. Ben, thank you so much for being with us. It's just fantastic to have you on the show. We look forward to seeing what comes next. Thanks for having me. Well, that was really interesting conversation with Ben. You know, I I really thought he's doing a lot of good. There's a, a, a quite an expansive look at nature and the world and hope and communities all tied up into what these works are. What did you think, Dan? I first I have to say I I thought it was interesting that, that Ben says, you know, he didn't grow up loving nature and, and is not necessarily a, a nature lover or, or being in nature, but but he considers himself and, and really is an environmental activist. I mean, like you said, he's done so much good and he, he mm-hmm. motivates and mobilizes people with his work uh, in a way that's so beneficial. Uh, I think he said, you know, helping empower people so that they they feel like they're contributing to the future while still looking cool. I think that's uh, (laughs) kind of sums it up. Yeah. For me, there's a great lesson in his work too, or in his perspective is that you don't have to be somebody who gets out in nature, goes camping, roughs it to do, to be somebody who takes an active role in conservation and sustainability. And, you know, he's a real champion for sustainability. Absolutely. 
we talk about biophilia and and that innate tendency uh, to to seek out connections with nature. And I think this is an example of someone, you know, and many people who may not have those sort of obvious connections or, or fall back to those connections, but this mm-hmm. sort of tendency to really to to have the feelings and the connections uh, that that just whether they know it or not, they recognize that. And I, I think he's you know a great champion for the environment, even if he says he's not necessarily. Uh, in love with nature. It was interesting, you know, that thinking about where he, in the kind of environment he said he wanted to live in, he he wove in the ideas of nature and sustainability in the, his ideal community. It was, a, it was to did. me, a very kind of insightful. So I wouldn't categorize him as somebody who doesn't care about nature as much as he doesn't have an affinity to being in nature. And that to me, I think is a really valuable distinction there. And he, he really makes makes the point that, you know, he's trying to reach those people. And, and by that, yeah. you know, folks who yeah. may be in that same that same basket that don't realize or don't recognize their connections. But I, I think he really loves nature and, and that's yeah. just kind of his, you know, his down. way of reaching out. Thank you for listening to Love Nature. You can be sure to never miss an episode by subscribing at love-nature.org. Please share the show with others as well. Our next guest is Todd Seiler. Todd is a multimedia artist, author, educator, and inventor, equally well known for his art and for his work in creativity research. All of the links mentioned in the show can be found at love-nature.org. You can visit the museum virtually at naturalsciences.org. Love Nature is a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, located in beautiful downtown Raleigh, North Carolina.